Good morning, everyone. My name is Owen Strand. Uh, I'm teaching this series on manhood and womanhood. Uh, we started last week. Uh, have the great joy of, of being with you this morning. So thankful for you and for this church. Well, we are in a confused age. On Facebook now, you have over 50 options for your gender. Here are a few that you could select. These are actual options. Cirque gender. If you are cirque gender, then you feel, this is the description, you feel so magical and grand as to be indescribable. So are you feeling magical this morning? At 8.30 in Sunday school? Magical and grand. If you're feeling magic, you better feel magical and grand at this Sunday school class. I'm just kidding. Um, you're welcome to the world of Cirque gender, apparently. Dymo gender, next option we should mention. This is a gender closely related to demons and the supernatural. So there's that. Felis gender, a small cat-like gender. If you are feeling cat-like this morning, you may be felis gender. And then finally, metagender. This is, a, again, a magical, whimsical gender. I don't know what it means on planet Earth to be whimsical and gender identity, but it's now an option for you and for me. This is where people are today. We, we raise these things, and we chuckle. And I think it's, I think it's appropriate to chuckle, but, but we also recognize, as we do, that flesh and blood people think that these are real options. They think, they actually think that they're are options that they can select. They don't think that God has given them an identity. They don't think that their identity is in any way fixed. They think that they actually should. They think they actually must select a gender identity. This is a revolutionary time, as we have been at pains to say in our study. This morning, we are leaving the world of the whimsical and the indescribable, at least in terms of gender identity, and we are plunging into the text to talk about manhood from first things, manhood from Genesis 2. Turn with me in your copy of Scripture or on your app, please, to Genesis 2. We're going to go to verse 5, and then we're going to skip a little bit, okay? But the, the passage we are going to be in this morning is Genesis chapter 2. This is the Word of God. This is inerrant, inspired, authoritative Scripture. This is not merely the history of the salvation of Israel. These are not the spiritual reflections of Moses. This is the living, profitable, reproving, authoritative Word of God. Genesis 2 verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Let's move ahead to verse 18, please. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning for your word. Father, we have staked our soul on your word. We trust it in full. It is not that we ourselves are perfect beings. You alone are perfect. It is not that we are able to keep holiness before you perfectly It is that we trust in you fully to keep our souls and to enable us to obey your holy word and to grow in godliness by the power of Christ in us. Father, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes. I pray this morning that you would make us humble and submissive before your word. This culture teaches us, Lord, to come to your word as critics and to sift it for the parts we like and the parts we don't like. I pray, Father, this morning that we would bow before your word, and we would kneel, and we would submit ourselves to it. You are awesome. You are great. You are holy. Instruct us now, we pray, through your Spirit, in the name of Christ. Amen. We note here from Genesis 2 several things. I want to walk through them. They are on your sheet if you have a handout, which is there in the back to my far left if you have come in more recently. Number one, the first thing we see here is that the man is called to protect. He's called to protection. The woman is made from his own body. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Verse 22, the woman is made from this rib. From 1994 to 2010, about four out of five victims of intimate partner violence were female. Eighty percent of those who suffered domestic abuse were female in this country. Thirty to sixty percent of those who perpetrate domestic abuse also abuse children. So there is a terrible connection between in many cases, not every case, but in many cases, men who abuse their spouse or their girlfriend or what have you, and then those same men abusing children in the home. It's easy for these things to be statistics, to be realities out there, that there is abuse that takes place. We know that in the broader world, and uh, it it's, can feel foreign to us. And yet we recognize that people around us are experiencing these statistics, are living these realities. Yesterday, up at Pleasant Valley Baptist Church, uh, I got to interview Lee Strobel, 
who wrote The Case for Christ and has written a number of books. Uh, it was a very interesting interview, very gifted man, has led many to Christ. And after the interview, I drive out back to my house up in the Northland, and uh, there are several people standing outside who have signs that say, hi, I'm an atheist and this sort of thing. So I, I go over and I talk to these folks about their atheism. I get into a conversation with them. It was a very enjoyable conversation. We weren't shouting at each other or something like this, throwing, you know, Northland mud at one another or something. We were talking. Uh, but one of the major points they raised is that Christianity allows men to lord their strength over women. And it was interesting for me to then talk to them about actually what life was like for, for example, a, a Roman wife in the first century in the pagan Roman culture, if a husband suspected, suspected his wife of adultery, he could murder her. He could kill her without legal recourse. Christianity comes along, and yes, Christianity has some words that challenge modern women, to be sure. We'll be talking about those, so let that be said. And yet, what does Christianity teach? Christianity teaches that a husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church, and so there is absolutely no grounds for any abuse of the kind that was common in the pagan Greco-Roman world, and the kind that is common in our neo-pagan American culture and society. All the way back in the beginning, Scripture calls the man to bless and love his wife, never to harm her. When the man looks at his wife in a Genesis 2 sense, he is supposed to think, as Adam indeed confesses, right, in verse 23, he is supposed to confess, he's supposed to think, this is bone of my bone, this is flesh of my flesh. Adam is getting rightly what the Lord intends him to understand. Adam is understanding this deeply intimate, mysterious connection between him and the woman, her being made in actual historical space and time senses from his body, from his body. This means by implication, my friends, and we're going to talk about these things next week as well. We'll fill it out from the rest of Scripture. But this means in terms of first things, going all the way back to the very foundation of our faith, Genesis 2, in the beginning, from the beginning, men, husbands, are called to protect their wives. Men are called to protect women. Now, even saying this, even saying that is not necessarily seen as a good thing today. That's seen as, perhaps by some, chauvinistic. Uh, it, it, some would think that I'm uh, rendering women ineffectual and physically incapable of defending themselves or things like this. I haven't said any of those things. In fact, one of the texts we'll look at next week involves, uh, in Judges 4, a woman killing a mighty warrior uh, using great agency. So, no one is here to say that women don't have agency in a sense, but we are here to say that the very design of God is not for men to harm women, but to protect them. So, who is a man? A man is somebody who sees himself, who sees his God-given strength. Men, on average, are stronger physically than women. It's not true in every case, but on average, stronger 
somewhat considerably stronger. And men are called to use whatever strength we have for the good of women. I am here to say to you this morning, I'm not just here to say this is an interesting teaching of the Word of God that you should consider. I'm here to say I believe this is part of the essence of manhood. This is part of what it means to be a man. This is part of what it means for you to be a man, married or unmarried. It does not matter. This is part of how you understand yourself in the world. This is totally questioned today, right? As we've talked about in previous weeks, because gender identity is severed from physical sex, yes, from anatomy, these sorts of things. So what happens when a culture embraces those kind of ideas is not only that you have a a, a severing of what God intends to be united, my identity from my body, but you also therefore are going to have a weakening of any meaningful conception, right, of what it means to be a man or a woman, conversely. In other words, you're you're just going to see your anatomy as just that, an anatomy. It means nothing, basically, I guess. The Scripture goes the opposite way. The Scripture, if we pay attention even in Genesis 2, is teaching us essential truths from the very foundation about men and women. And here, I believe, if we're paying attention, if we're reading carefully, if we're seeing how the Lord forms the woman, we see that men are called to protect women. The woman is from Adam's own body. Second truth we pick up here, the man is called to work and lead in working. Even before we talk about Genesis 3 and the curse and the way it affects Adam's uh, work, Adam is already working. Look in verses 19 and 20. God is forming the beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, and then the Lord, the Lord is bringing them to the man to see what He would call them. There is this beautiful symmetry that is taking place in a pre-fall creation such that Yahweh, the living God, is involving Adam, is involving the man in the deepest possible way with the structuring of the created order. Isn't that interesting this morning? Why, why, is, why doesn't Yahweh just name the animals? He made them. They're His idea. Adam has done absolutely nothing to, to copyright the patent on animals existing. That's Yahweh's copyright. And yet, the Lord has this desire to involve the man in the deepest possible way in work, in meaningful work in the created order, and taking what is in chaos and putting it into order. So, Adam is working properly understood even before the fall. This goes against the view of a great scholar like John Salehammer, who argues that work is a result of the fall. Salehammer taught for many years at Southeastern and and also Gateway in California, a very strong scholar on many, many points. I consult him regularly, as I'm sure Pastor Rick and other pastors in this church do in their commentary work, and yet here we see that Adam has meaningful work to do even before the fall. So, work, contra what you might have picked up from the office or something like that, Work is not part of the curse. It's a lie to us that Satan wants us to believe, guy and girl alike, that if we could just have what is on our screensaver at work, 
If we could just have that 365 days a year, we would be lastingly, truly happy. I think vacation is great, but have you ever gone on a vacation and on day, I don't know, five, you get a little itchy? You know what I'm saying? You, you and your spouse get a little, little bit testy with each other. You think, no, no, we're in paradise, man. This is vacation. This is vacation. How could we ever, ever have any kind of seeing things differently in this, our long-hoped-for vacation? Part of why I think this sort of thing happened, well, the doctrine of sin, but also part of why vacation doesn't always go exactly, precisely as we think it might, is because I actually think it's really good that we work. All of us work, men and women alike. A woman is working in a biblical sense in nurturing and making a home and raising children and these sorts of things. But here, Adam is the, is the leader in working. Adam is the one who is already working before the fall. He is naming the living things. He is involved with Yahweh in the ordering of the creation. I don't think that has gone away. I think this is part of what it means to be a man. This is, this is the man, in other words, fulfilling Genesis 1, 26 to 28. He's subduing the earth. He's ruling over the earth as God's vice king on the earth. As I say, he's putting things into order. He's taking dominion of things. Things that did not have structure and order, the man is putting into structure and order. If you have a job that involves structuring things, if you're a man, if, you, if your brain is wired that way, you, you have a lot in common with what Adam is doing here in the garden. Sometimes we talk about vocation as if, you know, pastoral work is the only work that matters. It's not remotely true. We, we believe that pastors lead in fulfilling the Great Commission, so that is hugely important, but we also believe that God loves work. God is the original worker. God is the original creator. God is the original maker. So, if you're a Christian and you're clocking in, as we all are in some form, and you're working day by day, and if you're a man and you're doing this work, you were made for this. This is part of your identity. This is part of the essence of manhood that you would get to work. I remember being raised in Maine, and my dad, I think I shared this a little bit, but my dad put me out on the Blueberry Barrens from an early age, ages 11 to 12, and I learned through that experience that men work. It was very hard. We got up at 4.30. The, the work was genuinely challenging. You came home aching and exhausted. It was so good for me as a boy. Boys still need that kind of experience, by the way. Boys do not need to be coddled. Boys need to be loved and shepherded and raised well. Amen. But boys need to be encouraged to toughen up. Boys need to, to learn to work. Boys need to see their father working. And I think all of this is out of the overflow of this text. I think the rest of Scripture, as we'll see next week, reinforces this teaching. Today, though, boys are trained increasingly, not in every setting, but in many settings, to sit back. Girls in our public schools are empowered. Girls and women are encouraged to lean in, and boys are effectively in many situations told not to do so, to step back. And men are taking their cultural cues, and men are struggling today, our young men in particular. We are not in some sort of Cold War degree race, okay? Hear that clearly. But for every 
140 college degrees, graduating from college, that women earn. So women have 140, 100 men graduate. That is a total reversal of the way things used to be. Now, there are some things to say about women getting schooling and these sorts of things uh, that many of us would support in our broader society, and yet you cannot fail to notice the disparity there. For every 100 men who earn a college degree, 140 women earn a college degree. Earning a college degree is not that which confers upon you dignity and worth. It's not. And yet we do very much need to point out that this is not primarily a statistic of health. This is showing us that in many cases, young men are struggling. In too many cases, young men are not giving themselves to their vocation. They are giving themselves to their avocation. In too many cases, young men are taking serious things unseriously, and they are taking unserious things seriously. I enjoy sports. I have played video games. I'll put that on public record. Uh, so I don't think it is sinful to enjoy an athletic competition. I don't think it is inherently sinful to play a video game, something like this. That's not the case I'm here to make. I don't think that. I do think that it is deeply problematic for me as a man to lose myself in sports, to, to take the entire weekend and have the TV on to the games I want to watch when I have three children who need me to get on the floor and play with them and go on walks with them and a wife who has home projects that need my attention, scary prospect for some of us, but uh, hey, the honeydew list is a real thing. I have a family that needs leading. I have children that need investment, and yet I find myself tempted, just as modern men are across the board, by avocations, by the unserious things of life. It's easy for us men today, particularly in an entertainment-saturated, entertainment-saturated culture, to lose ourselves in our hobbies, in our pursuits, in our avocations. You watch, I don't know, House Hunters, House Hunters on HGTV. Who's watched House Hunters? Let's, it's true confession time. A lot of you, okay. You watch House Hunters, and it's very common for the woman in the show to be thinking about the needs of the family in a very serious, she, she's thinking about like what practically needs to be, you know, for the kids and this and that, the other thing, and the, the kitchen, she wants, you know, I don't know, what do they call it? Subway tile and these sorts of things, okay. And, and it's very, very common for the man as the program goes on, to talk about his man cave or his guitar room or his uh, sports stuff or whatever it may be. That stuff is not necessarily wrong, but it just stands out to me when I watch that program with my wife. I don't think it's wrong to play the guitar, to enjoy the Chiefs, to watch basketball. I watch basketball on a weekly basis. I do th think, though, that it's tempting for us men to opt out of the most serious things before us and to take unserious things seriously. One of the antidotes to this kind of culture and to that kind of instinct is to reframe our thinking and to see our work 
our weekly work as men, our work to provide for our family. I believe men are called to provide for their family. There are instances when a man is, is struggling to do that. If he loses his job or health concerns or other things, I believe a woman can contribute uh, biblically uh, to the home's finances and this sort of thing in all sorts of creative ways. But I believe the man is called to work, and he is called to provide for his household. He is called to put that responsibility on his shoulders. He is called even to take that responsibility off his wife's shoulders. Many women today, I think, struggle to bear that responsibility. He is called to do whatever it takes to get it done. I remember hearing one theologian at Southern Seminary when I was there in my MDiv say, if you have to live in a trailer park in order that the man can provide and the wife can raise these children and invest in them for the glory of God, do it. That's a good call. That's not the call many people around us will make because, again, we're not just in an entertainment-saturated society. We're in a very affluent society, unprecedented affluence in human history. We're in the most affluent society in human history, and, and many of us, we're, you know, we're not billionaires or something, but we, we are reaping those fruits, and, and God is blessing uh, us in that sense, but we just have to know that we, we are called to make the kind of decisions that are going to reflect the teaching of Scripture. So, the man is called to work. This is going to be fleshed out further in terms of his providing role later on in Scripture, but I think it's introduced here already. Third point, the man is called to lead, we see here. The man is called to lead. He is the one who is to leave father and mother. He is the one who holds fast to his wife. The U.S. is leading the way in fatherlessness. We are the global leader, America, in fatherlessness. We are a tenaciously divided society today with violence breaking out, if you're paying attention, all across America along political lines. And it's so hard to reason through numerous issues politically. Here is one issue that everybody of all sides should be able to see and agree on. Fatherlessness. It is an epidemic. Right now in America, about 41%, 41% of children are born to single mothers. America, four out of 10 children born at the local hospitals, on average, to single moms. No father showing up in the, in the hospital room. No father helping in the middle of the night to, to, you know, walk the baby, get the bottle ready, or whatever it is. No father, as the child grows up, to play catch or to go to a tea party. No dad. No dad coming through the door. Ever. If ever there's an issue that lots of us could agree on and could tackle, I think it's this one. And yet, this seems to be the disappearing issue, the one that is right before us but almost nobody sees. An estimated 24.7 million children live absent their biological father. So just to give the stat there, not the percentage, but the number, 24.7 million children. Of students in grades 1 through 12, 39% live in homes absent their biological fathers. 
39%. What a tremendous need there is today. Douglas Wilson, who I don't agree on everything with, has summed up the current state of this situation and has said that there is tremendous father hunger in our society. Now, I think we actually have that innately, and boys in particular need a father. Both girls and boys desperately need a father, but if boys do not have that same-sex parent, that, that father to look up to, and that father to discipline them, and that father to play with them, and that father to lead them, that boy is very likely to shoot off the rails in any number of directions. He's probably going to look for a surrogate father, that father hunger does not go away, and he may well find it in any number of bad fathers, so to speak, bad surrogate fathers of, of many different kinds. If father and mother attend church together, 33% of children, according to estimates, 33% of children end up as regular churchgoers later in life. So, father and mother together, one out of three kids are going to end up going to church the rest of their life. If the mother goes to church and the father doesn't, you know what the stat is? 3%. The number drops, likelihood of lifetime church attendance. The number drops, the percentage drops of that child being likely to go to church the rest of their life from 33 to 3. It drops from a very good possibility that that child will, in our terms, become a born-again believer and go to church, at least a solid possibility, to almost an impossibility. All of that is speaking to… This isn't just sociology. I think that's a witness to the leading, the leadership of the father, the importance of the father in setting the tone for the family. It's not the wife in Genesis 2 who holds fast to the husband. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, leave the nest, and hold fast to his wife. It is the man who sets the temperature, emotionally speaking, of the home. If the family has a solid, sturdy, iron-grade feel, it's because there is a man who is holding fast to his wife and who will never leave her. Divorce is now just one of many options before us, and people are opting into divorce at record rates and in the age of no-fault divorce. There are biblical grounds, I believe, for divorce. Let that be said, conversation for another matter. I'm not talking about biblically warranted, biblically allowable divorce, depending on your view. There's some, some different views out there in our evangelical community. I'm not talking about that, okay? I'm talking about no fault. I'm talking about falling out of love with one another in, in the form that is now very common in America and in the West more broadly. A, a biblical man, in his essence, does not see that as an option, the kind of, I fell out of love with her kind of situation. I, I don't really… I, I, we had three kids together, we had two kids together, we had a kid together, but I, I'm not really feeling that attached to this family. I'm going to dissolve this family, and I'm going to go make another one. There are biblical grounds for divorce, namely porneia, adultery, but that is not 
the norm for us in the Christian community, and we certainly do not baptize a kind of no-fault divorce sort of paradigm as evangelicals. Men, hold fast to your wife. Hold fast to your children. Make a commitment before God, before Almighty God, that you will never walk out on your family. Make a commitment. Pray. Pray like the wind to God that He will give you the grace despite your sin, despite my sin, despite those moments when we're low, despite those low points in a marriage that every marriage hits, every marriage hits, that you will never walk out. You will never turn your back on this woman that God has given you. You will never, can you imagine, you will never leave these children without a father. This is, I think, what Scripture is summoning us to, to leave father and mother at an appropriate age when a, when a young man is ready, when he has been trained, that's roughly college age, I think, in our society, in our day and time. Not every man, not every woman is called to marriage. Let that be said. We'll talk more about that. Singleness is, is a very godly state if approached from a gospel-driven perspective. And yet, the norm for men is marriage. That's the normative expectation. We certainly need many people to get married and have children. So, uh, just in societal terms, to say nothing of ecclesial terms. So, this is the norm, and this is what we pray for. We know now, of course, that young men and young women are challenged along these lines culturally. Sorry, uh, music um, thing. Um, what is this called? Stand. Stand. I almost said music stool, and that did not seem right to me. Did not seem right. Bad mind. Bad mind. Okay. So, we know that men, are, men and women are challenged. We know that the average age of marriage today is about 30 for men and 28 for women, so, so we're not here to, to decry this or, you know, say that anybody who would get married at those ages is, you know, sub-Christian or something. This is pressure the culture is putting on us. It's changed, it's changed things for young men and young women, but listen, the Bible hasn't changed. The Bible hasn't changed. We have, a, we have a different worldview. We have different expectations. So, this is what we're seeking to create as a culture in a church, a, a culture where young men see it as a, not a bad thing to leave father and mother, but a good thing to leave father and mother and hold fast, hold fast to one wife. What a witness that will be. Everybody wants to be a witness. Men, you want an excellent way to be a witness? today in 2018, when the family is blowing up all around us. Hold fast to your wife. Love your children. You want to be an activist in some form? You want to, you want to be a, a salt and light influence powered by the gospel of grace? Love your family. Love your family in public. Enjoy your children. Put your phone away at the park. Pay attention to your kids. Just those kind of small acts today are increasingly uncommon. But the father, the father who engages in these ways, by the grace of God, will stand out and will be a witness. What will happen, honestly, when you go to a park or something like this, is you'll actually find children who are not your own kids uh, flocking to you. They'll, they'll be at your feet, and you won't know why. Do you know why? It's because you're being a biblical man. It's because you, you love those around you, and it's contagious. 
And there are so many in our culture and society who are not tasting any of that. There's tremendous father hunger today. Let's pray, men, that we'll, we, will, we will recognize that part of the essence of manhood is to lead. It is to lead. And for many of us, it is to lead a family. What, what a privilege it is. What a joy it is. Fourth, fourth insight here. There is only one context given in the Bible for sexual activity. I don't think in the handout I actually put this in. I didn't define it. I have it as a colon here. And then marriage. It's the only context given in the Bible for sexual activity. And the man and his wife, verse 25, were both naked and were not ashamed. There's no shame in the Bible's plan. There's nothing weird about a husband loving his wife, about a, a wife loving her husband. We feel strange today if, if we see a couple um, loving one another, you know, uh, uh, showing affection in any form. That's not strange. That's beautiful. It's, it's, it's weird for teenagers who are 14 years old to pretend that they're married. That's weird. That's strange. They're not married. That young man has, abs- he has absolutely no idea what it is to love a woman. I say this as a 37-year-old man who is still learning in year 13 of marriage to love a woman. If I am very much in the degree program of learning to love a woman, a complex and interesting undertaking every day of my life, thank you. There's two of us. There's two of us in this, in this degree program. A 14-year-old is not ready. A 16-year-old is not ready. A 17-year-old is not ready. At least, I, I, I don't see it commonly. Certainly a 13-year-old, an eighth grader, they, are, they don't have any clue what it means to, to care for a woman, to, to love her well, to treat her rightly. What's weird is the American system where we have marriageized dating, and, and we, now look at, we now look at marriage as strange. Marriage is the context in the Bible for sexual activity. Sometimes people say, sometimes youth group members will say, what is okay? What can I do if I have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Or, you know, in college, prior to courtship and engagement and marriage, What's okay for us to do? Well, there are some conversations to have there. You should have those with a, an elder here. Talk, talk to an elder. Talk to a, a godly father in the congregation. There are some things to say, some gray areas, some hand-holding questions and other things that we could talk about. But we just need to note where the mark is set, don't we, biblically? The mark is set in terms of sexual activity at marriage. That, that's where it all goes. That's where the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, are naked and not ashamed. So many people live in shame today. So many young people, so many high schoolers, so many college students, so many university students, so many 20-somethings live in shame. They live in shame. Why? False shame? No. Real shame. Real guilt. Data from the National Survey of Family Growth indicates that in recent years, three out of four Americans had sex by age 20, and of that percent, 75% had premarital sex. 
So most young people uh, engaging in sexual activity, I know I'm in mixed company here, forgive the direct speech, but many young people today, as we would guess in our secular context, are having premarital sex. And the result of that, the result of that sin against God, let it be said here if nowhere else in American society, the result of that sin against God is tremendous. Shame, guilt, confusion, brokenness about identity. You say, well, how? Why? I don't exactly know, but God has ordained that there would be a spiritual component to sex. It is a gift of Him. The marriage relationship collectively images Christ and His church, the gospel. There is something very powerful. There's a lot of horsepower in the marriage bed, and when you mess with that, when you mess with the will of God, when you begin engaging in sexual activity out of God-ordained structures, you set yourself up for terrible brokenness, shame, and guilt, and it's all because you're sinning against God. From 1943 to 1999, attitudes toward premarital sex in America have not just changed. It's like a different country. In 1943, the, the percentage of young women who approved of premarital sex, you ready? In America, 12%. 12%. Uh, in 1943, the percentage of young men who approved of premarital sex, 40%. 12%, 40%. I think that shows you something about men and how men are oriented, by the way. I think it does. In 1999, the percentage of young women who approved of premarital sex, 73. 73%. It went from 12 to 73, the percentage of young men in 1999 who approved of premarital sex, 79. So we have gone from a culture with some form of the Judeo-Christian ethic, choosing my words carefully, being very much in practice in the 40s, people waiting until marriage to have sex, to the complete reversal of that, and even approving of premarital sex. Students, do you want to be a witness? Young men and young women, I know we're, I know we're getting right to the heart of the matters here, and parents, I, I apologize if this is too direct, but I, I've got a, a verse here that's pretty direct itself, Genesis 2.25. Students, do you want to be a witness? In similar terms to what we were talking about, pursue purity. Be pure by the grace of God. It's not by your own bootstraps. It's not by your own effort. It is by the grace of God. But make no mistake, those momentary decisions that you make matter, and they will set you apart in a world awash with sin telling you the lie that if you just give in to your flesh, you'll be happy and there will be no shame that is in truth awash in shame. So, let's go back to first things. There's only one context given in the Bible for God-honoring sexual activity. It is not dating. It is not prom. It is not high school. It's not college. It's marriage. And that is supposed to be for men who on average have a much stronger drive than women in this department, on average, not true in every case, but that is called 
That, that is, excuse me, that is for young men supposed to be a summons to leave father and mother. I remember hearing Al Mohler at Southern talk about this a good bit in his training of young men. And in his handling of the pornography crisis, part of what Moeller pointed out is this is a crisis because young men are not getting married. Young, young men do not change. Young men will seek an outlet where they can find it. And for various reasons, they're not getting married. What, what we need to recover then is a marriage culture in the evangelical community. It doesn't make all the problems go away. It doesn't make lust go away as a problem. You have to fight it every day of your life. You have to fight sin every day of your life, whatever form. Men have to, men have to seek self-control every day of our lives in this area. We can blow up our families and blow up our homes on one business trip, on one click on the internet. It's very easy to do it. Men are all around us are doing it. They're losing their ministries. They're losing their marriages. They're losing everything because of momentary decisions. And yet, this is God's call to a young man, verse 24, to leave father and mother and hold fast to one wife. This is still good. This is still helpful to men in a profound way. Fifth, sex is not made for anyone as they see fit. Sex depends on manhood and womanhood. Biblical sexuality, then, we see in this passage is not dependent on lusts or feelings. Biblical sexuality is dependent on God's holy design. It's dependent on God's design. Please hear me as clearly as I can speak. Biological sex and gender identity cannot be severed. In fact, I don't even really accept the terms. I don't even really accept the concept of gender identity. Your sex is your identity. If you're a man, that is your identity. If you have the body of a man, you are a man. This is a sense in which we see that, that God's creation, general revelation, witnesses to the truth of special revelation. We're not natural law theorists as evangelicals. I don't, don't affirm that. But we do recognize that if God has created manhood and womanhood as, as laid out in the Word of God, we're going to see that witnessed in the created order. And we do. We do. So to be a man is a good thing. To have a manly body is, is not a bad thing. To have a manly body is God's gift to you. To live in that body as a man is a good thing. To not have the attributes of a woman, not because you hate women, but because you want to be a godly man, is a good thing. To learn, as my grandmother, my grandmother, interesting, was always telling me, straighten up. She would always say that to me. You're slumping. I, I was kind of a slumper. And when I watch TV, I'm kind of a sloucher. I like to slouch. Uh, okay, draw whatever conclusions you want from that about my character. But my grandmother was always working on me saying, stand up straight like a man. Grandmothers, she wasn't a Christian, grandmothers used to say that sort of thing. And my grandfather would say, shake hands like a man. And speakers along the way taught me that I needed to not speak through my nose, but do whatever I could to speak like a man. And these things aren't, listen, these things that I'm talking about, I'm specifically not saying are found in the law of God's will or something like this, but these are attempts, hear me, stay with me for just a sec, these kind of common sense things are an attempt to do justice to the distinctness of manhood. There's some give and take, there's some gray areas. But what we're seeking to do as a man is inhabit the body God has given us for the glory of God Himself. And we have to train our sons, men, men. We have to train our sons. Grandfathers, grandfathers, you have to train your grandsons 
in these kind of things. You have to take the truths of Scripture, and, and, and you have to teach those, and then you need to take the gray areas and use wisdom based on biblical principles like the ones we are talking about, including the idea that there is such a thing as a man. There's, there's a, a manly way to live. That's mocked when it's raised in our culture, but we shouldn't mock it as evangelicals. We shouldn't mock these ideas. Finally, six Sixth principle we uncover here in Genesis 2, our identity is not primarily sexual, it is primarily spiritual. By this, I mean that human identity in Genesis 2 is distinctly intertwined with divine activity. The man and the woman cannot understand themselves apart from the divine activity, the causation, the providence of Almighty God. This is the overflow of Genesis 1, that mankind is made in the image of God. We are fundamentally not sexual beings, though that is a part of our identity. We are fundamentally spiritual beings. We are fundamentally made to know God. That's what the human race is for. We, we are made to worship God, and we will worship. We will worship as human beings, whether we worship God, the Creator, or we worship created things. We will worship one way or another. Young men and young women, the question is not whether you are going to worship something. It is what you are going to worship. The question is not whether you are going to obey and submit to something. You will obey and submit to something. It may be a, a secular thinker. It may be uh, your favorite speaker. It may be a celebrity. It may be some, an Instagram personality. It may be found on a, a Reddit subthread on the internet. You're going to worship and be led by someone and something. The question is, is it going to be Almighty God? Are you going to recognize that your soul is made to know the living God? Okay, well, these are six things I believe we see, we find. If we pay attention as first principles in Scripture about manhood, and more broadly, about the sexes.